Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me was in Cannes last year and that's where David spoke to director David Lynch the day after its screening in competition. Despite David Lynch's many trips to Cannes, arguably the 1992 event remains the most famous association between director and festival. This is the most horrendous time, releasing the picture and seeing what people say. And then some time goes by and then it's regarded differently, you know, but when they first see a film, many strange reactions. Pretty serious uh, challenge. Firewalk With Me's negative reception came just two years after he'd won the Palme d'Or for Wild at Heart. I've been trying to get to the Cannes Film Festival for 20 years. I can't believe what's happening. It's a true a dream come true. Thank you very much. I'm all. David Lynch rather sensitive to reaction to Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me in Cannes. Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is a critical archive where I am reading responses to the film throughout the years. Starting in 1992, critics and journalists who generally almost exclusively did not receive it well, although there are a few interesting exceptions, and then uh, moving on to scholars and essayists in the 90s who had a more sensitive take on it, I think, generally speaking, and then all the way up to bloggers and other commentators in the teens in the uh, previous decade who I think helped participate in the Twin Peaks revival that brought us to where we are. So we're going to, this, this is going to be a very expansive section. We're going to be moving through 25 years of material, and uh, there's a lot to talk about. So uh, I'm going to read sometimes pretty lengthy excerpts here. This is very much an archival reading episode, so buckle up for that. Peak's Project on the Ascent by Elaine Dutka, Chicago Sun-Times, in August 19, 1991. The project, tentatively titled Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, will feature all the regulars with the exception of Lara Flynn Boyle, McLaughlin's real-life love interest, who played the slain Laura Palmer's best friend on the show, and Sherilyn Fenn another high school friend of Palmer's. Both actresses reportedly had to bow out because of scheduling conflicts. Rather than negotiate for a later date, we decided to go on without them, says Gay Pope, unit publicist for Lynch Frost, the director's production company. We might even have gone on without Kyle, rewriting the script, but his decision to do this makes a great deal of difference. We're hoping that those fans loyal to the show, which has been canceled by ABC, will come to the theaters. Our thought is that there's a built-in market there. From Cannes Film Festival press conference for Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, David Lynch, May 1992. Uh, this is from a book on uh, David Lynch. They quote this press conference. Here's one passage from that. Mr. Lynch, when you decided to do a long film on Laura Palmer, was it because you felt you owed the actress for having spent the entire series as a corpse? And Lynch answers, no. Cheryl Lee, who plays Laura Palmer, was hired to be a dead girl laying on a beach. It turns out, at least in my opinion, she's an unbelievable actress, and there are things that she's done in this movie that are truly incredible. I haven't seen too many people get into a role and give it as much. So, the big news for me was the person hired to be a dead girl turns out to be a great actress and a perfect Laura Palmer. From the article, Lynch Mob in Con, The Swarmed Reception for the Twin Peaks Director by Rita Kempley, The Washington Post, May 18, 1992. It says, When Lynch, smiling enigmatically, arrived at the party, his entrance was televised on a three-story screen. At an earlier news conference, the director had informed everyone, 
I happen to be in love with Twin Peaks. I wanted to go back, but there are some things in there that are original. We didn't think about rehashing the same old thing. The movie prequel concerns the last seven days of Laura Palmer's sad life as an abused child. Asked why, if he liked the place, the residents were so miserable, Lynch said, I'd have to sit down with a psychiatrist for a long time to come up with why I like it, but I really, really like it. And then Rita Kempley adds, It should be noted that in Firewalk With Me, at least, the late Miss Palmer goes to heaven. From David Lynch, once again at peak of controversy, from Roger Ebert in the Chicago Sun-Times, May 24, 1992, he writes, The movie, much more violent and lurid than the televised namesake, was greeted with boos and catcalls after the morning press screening, but found its share of defenders too. I thought The New Lynch was a shockingly bad film, simple-minded and scornful of its audience, which could be defended only with the wheezy, so-bad-it's-good routine. Cheryl Lee appeared on the Arsenio Hall show in late August 1992, and Cheryl Lee said, It's tough. It's a tough film. It's raw. And Arsenio Hall said, Oh, the violence, the sexuality. And Lee said, Yeah, all of it. And Hall responded, See, now, that makes me want to go now. On Twin Peaks Peak, the film screening for L.A., Kevin Allman, uh, Los Angeles Times, August 28, 1992, they wrote, The Buzz. Although guests at the party were enthusiastic, it was, at the very least, unusual that New Line Cinema didn't screen Firewalk With Me for the crowd. An L.A. screening might have gone a long way to combat tepid industry word of mouth about this movie. Then again, it may not have. Quoted, Dana Ashbrook, who plays Bobby Briggs, defended David Lynch's dark visions, which have been called too violent by some. Said Ashbrook, People take things so seriously. It doesn't condone violence. It's a cool movie. It's very avant-garde. It's not like your totally predictable, totally pat movie like Basic Instinct. Exit line. How quickly we forget our favorite fads in today's accelerated culture. Referring to all the Twin Peaks trappings, one guest said, was it only a couple of years ago? It already feels like nostalgia. <laughs> Just what we need to make us feel even older. 90s nostalgia. From Past Its Peak by David Kerr in the Chicago Tribune, August 28, 1992, we have uh, the following uh, excerpts. Ultimately, Lynch seems interested only in reproducing the trademarks of the series and reviving the regular characters, including Kyle MacLachlan's Agent Cooper, in an outrageously arbitrary appearance, while supplying an R-rated level of mild titillation. Those aren't good reasons for a movie to exist. This simplistic, puritanical division of the world into good and bad is what stands behind the twin peaks of the title and never, in Lynch's proudly naive universe, did the twain meet. There is no real puzzle here, only a pat application of fearful and conventional judgments. The world is seen by an eagle scout feeling his first fearful stirrings of sexuality. Lynch has made the right choice in swapping suspense for enigma. Otherwise, all the movie would have had to offer would be the unbearably linear and sadistic process of waiting for Lara's inevitable rape and murder, a spectacle that Lynch does serve up with great delectation in the film's one real violation of the television norms. But in going so far to avoid a linear structure, Lynch has ended up with its equally deadly opposite, a film which in no one scene necessarily follows another. 
The film's nearly complete lack of logical connections and forward momentum quickly become tiresome, as if Lynch were simply dealing his cards out on a table, in whatever order the shuffle happened to produce. For a film with a pre-established conclusion, Twin Peaks' Firewalk with Me seems depressingly interminable. In Firewalk with Me, for Peaks Freaks Only, by Jay Carr, the Boston Globe, August 29, 1992, he writes... In place of incident, character, and a bemused view of small-town life corrupt beneath its cherry pie service, we are essentially asked to witness torture, mostly of Laura Palmer, as her troubles lead her to self-destruct with drugs and promiscuity, including a couple of side trips to the Canadian bordello known as One-Eyed Jacks. For all the violence in Lynch's Blue Velvet, that film maintained a comic dimension. The violence in Wild at Heart, for all its extravagance of gesture, was hollow, stylized, not real. Here, there's no comedy, nothing surreal, just wave after wave of titillation. Except that it doesn't titillate, it depresses. There's no psychic charge on any of it. It proceeds from no artistic convention, just a cynical desire to squeeze a few more bucks from the already overworked corpse of Laura Palmer. It shows how quickly a creative impulse can be exhausted, from quirky originality toying with humanity's darkest impulses to dispirited quasi-porn, and it may be strange, but Peaks Lacks Fire by Melinda Miller in the Buffalo News, August 29th, 1992, she writes, Isaac and Sutherland's quirky routine is cut short as Lynch fast-forwards a year to Laura's last orgiastic, terrifying drug-clouded week. And when he does, all that is offbeat, unexpected, and charming is left behind. Cheryl Lee, her role greatly expanded from the blue-lipped corpse she played in the series, is fairly stunning as Laura fighting for her life, and finally accepting that she will lose. Lynch understands the voyeuristic appeal of madness, and he plays hard on it, but the audience takes the pounding for nothing. We know she will die. We know how. We know when. And that's exactly what happens. In the article Firewalking with Fans of Twin Peaks by Cindy Perlman in the Chicago Sun-Times on August 30th, 1992, she visits the Twin Peaks Festival where uh, Twin Peaks premiered, And she writes down some quotes and other passages here. So, first of all, we've never had a homecoming queen die, says local Maggie Meltzer. Laura is not typical of the girls up here. Laura led a lurid life. The poor little thing. And then uh, Meltzer writes, or uh, Perlman writes, not Meltzer. Meltzer was the person quoted. Cindy Perlman, the journalist, writes, Laura Palmer lives. On an outdoor stage overlooking the mountains, Cheryl Lee, the world's most famous dead girl, holds court. She looks fragile with translucent white skin. Her filmy blue shirt is taken by the wind as she talks about the harsh plot of Firewalk with me. She's talking about incest. This movie is about the incest between Laura and her father. It's a horrible thing, Lee says. She hates Laura's image. I get defensive when people label her a bad girl. Any victim of incest is going to make unhealthy choices. A tragic girl is not a bad girl. In Campy Fire Tale, Twin Peaks prequel trots out Familiar Misfits by Lynn Vodish on the, in the uh, Chicago Sun-Times on August 31st, 1992. She writes, We see how Laura discovers that her tormentor Bob is really her dear old dad, Leland Palmer. Mainly, peakheads get a big peek at Laura's sordid high school career. Laura was a bad seed, spending nights turning tricks at a roadhouse, coking up her brain and generally earning a very bad reputation. 
but the girl just couldn't help it. After all, her dad was possessed by a monstrous killer-slash-rapist, and Laura's alcoholic-slash-nicotine-addict mom practically wore an out-of-order sign around her neck. Lee gives an alternately sexy and hysterical performance as Laura. The overwhelming question, how can a drugged-out, mentally-tormented incest victim look this good? Ray Wise plays Leland as if he's anxiously awaiting a nuclear holocaust. And then there were some more positive reviews. Very rare, usually on the margins of the journalistic community on some more regional newspapers, not the big national flagships. First of all, we have Twin Peaks. The movie is a stronger brew by Jay Boyar in Orlando Sentinel on August 31st, 1992. He writes, Before I saw the new Twin Peaks movie, I wondered if it would be understood by people who weren't fans of the TV series. But after watching the film... I wonder if it'll be understood by people who were. In the series, the audience's perspective was often a bit detached. We might have been seeing the action through the eyes of Agent Cooper or Sheriff Truman or even the mischievous Audrey Horn, whose father ran the Great Northern Hotel. But the movie does something so daring as to verge on recklessness. In Firewalk With Me, Lynch attempts to let the audience see the final weeks of Laura Palmer's life through her own troubled eyes. As series regulars may have gathered, Laura is a high school student whose father has been sexually abusing her for years. Even with the comic relief and distancing techniques of the series, this was powerful material. Without them, the movie is sensationally strong. Not only does he show us the horrible world in which Laura lives, he also tries to give us a sense of how she perceives that world. We witness her eerie dreams, share her fantasies of self-deception, and participate in the cokehead highs that she uses to blot out the darkness of her reality. You need to have seen most of the series to grasp the subtle way that the movie fills in the gaps in the storyline, and probably even to follow the narrative path at times. You also have to be willing to let go of the series to accept the movie's dramatically different perspective. This is a lot for Lynch and co-screenwriter Robert Engels, a producer and writer for TV's Twin Peaks, to ask. And I'm less than optimistic about the film's commercial prospects. And the movie's critical chances are also in doubt. Appearing in almost every scene beyond the prologue is Cheryl Lee, whose sweet-faced, starry-eyed photograph kept the memory of Laura Palmer alive in the TV show. As the star of Firewalk With Me, Lee gives an unusual an affecting performance. You might even say that, under the surface, Laura isn't really so different from the title character of Lynch's 1980 movie, The Elephant Man. Doomed and a victim of extravagant abuse, she understands she's a freak, yet she desperately wants to deny it. Knowing what we do about Laura Palmer, can we blame her for fooling herself? In the article, Twin Peaks Awakens Movie Lover and Us All by Jeff Simon, The Buffalo News, September 6, 1992. So as we watch as the creativity of American movies sinks quickly into the Pacific and leaves behind a continent-sized oil slick, it's time to put some movies and some necessary superlatives into the lifeboat for survival. Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, for one. It's the most exciting American movie since the Coen Brothers' Barton Fink, a a two-and-a-half-hour nightmare that is one of the most stubbornly dreamlike commercial movies ever made in America. Here's one theory, propounded by the family's young theatrical philosopher after the screening. It wouldn't surprise me if David Lynch did the TV series just so he could get an audience for this. 
Some of the actors are the same, some of the sets are the same, some of Angelo Badalamenti's brooding and beautiful music is the same, and yet the film is entirely different. It isn't just the essential difference in scale either, although that figures enormously. A TV show is like a household pet. No matter how weirdly funny and horrific it is, you think of it as somehow miniaturized and cute. Hence the hailstorm of Twin Peaks products and marketing engendered by the show's cult audience. In modern America, what may begin as art always, always ends as packaging. Incredibly, the tale is moving. It isn't just drenched in that knowing, postmodern irony that turns everything into a joke. It is wild and sexy and finally, very sad. And it establishes Shirley as a superb young actress. On the TV show, she was wrapped up in a plastic tarp and stuffed into the odd flashback. She may be a good decade beyond the age she's playing, but in the movie, she gives a full performance. An erotic, decadent, traumatized, terror-stricken performance. She's another actress entirely from what we saw on television. What Lynch has done in Twin Peaks, the movie, is to wrench father-daughter incest and child murder out of the hands of Oprah and the TV movie of the week and put it back into the incoherent horrors of the collective unconscious where it belongs. Now that the film culture era ushered in by Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde has turned into a squabbling, trivial, and declining babble of tedious but film-savvy filmmakers and critics, the great figures in the ascending generation of American movies seem to be the ones who have avoided the corruptions of film culture altogether. Lynch and Tim Burton, who both came from art school, and Ron Shelton, who came from the farm system of the Baltimore Orioles. They create a film and narrative film language of their own, not one that's been patched together out of overly familiar cinematic dialects. Twin Peaks Firewalk Me is a film that asks for trouble in many, many ways. Its length, its origins in the TV phenomenon, its radical dislocation from almost everything else that you can see in movie theaters. And trouble it got right from the beginning, when its distributors delayed screenings until the very last minute because it was too strange. And yet, it seems to me one of the films of the year, and one of those rare movies that makes people remember what they loved about movies in the first place. And then finally, from this era, Naked Lynch, introduced and interviewed by Jeff Andrew. This is an article in Time Out London that appeared in November 18th, 1992. And Andrew wrote, The film appears to be a deeply cynical exercise, a blatant attempt to cash in on the success of the TV series. None of it is properly thought through, let alone original or heartfelt. The overwhelming impression is that Lynch is churning out exactly what he imagines Tweakies will expect, and no more. Small wonder, then, that he appears so listless when asked to explain and discuss Firewalk with me. Is this reticence just part of the ordinary Joe pose? Perhaps, but nothing he says suggests that he is prepared, or even able, to examine and confront his work in any depth. Maybe he has fallen victim to the cult worship and grown lazy, but the question remains the same. Is the inarticulacy an act? If so, it's boring and dumb. If not, well, judge for yourself. And then we have the interview. So Andrew asks, so would you do another Twin Peaks film? And Lynch answers, yes, it could go on forever. I'd like to do different things as well, but I feel so comfortable in that world. Andrew, is it good for an artist to feel that comfortable? Lynch, well, let's say comfortable like inspired, not comfortable like sit back and watch the scenery. It's an inspiring place. There are mysteries there for me. And Andrew adds as a comment, 
Evidently, Lynch is not big on discussing motivation. Time to check if he's any happier with meaning. And Andrew says, Frankly, I had trouble making sense of the film's prologue section, in terms of the narrative leaps and the deductions being made about the murder. Does it all make sense to you? And Lynch responds, It does and it doesn't. It's like opening a window and looking for a moment, then closing it and asking someone to explain an hour's worth of scenario when they've only seen a small bit. It was like impressions a detective might get. A prologue of sensations, of feelings, trying to capture something. The FBI don't have a clue what's happening, but they've got their sensors going. Andrew asks, so you're an intuitive rather than an analytical filmmaker? And Lynch says, purely, yes. Here's an excerpt from a Lynch biography, Beautiful Dark. The author is Greg Olson, and this offers some samples from other critical takes of the time, so it serves as a good kind of comprehensive review of that. Here's what he wrote. In our flavor of the month culture, home of the incredibly shrinking attention span, our ears are filled with blaring sound bites, our eyes and brains made dizzy by assault of images edited at quantum speed. We build up celebrities, worship them, then reject them in record time. By the summer of 1992, Lynch was no longer a hot topic in the public mind, but it was nonetheless shocking that Time, Newsweek, and the popular TV film review show Siskel and Ebert at the movies did not deign to say one word about Lynch's new film. Some critics, however, did have plenty to say, the majority of which was resoundingly negative. People Magazine's Tom Gliato characterized it as a nauseating bucket of slop. Interview viewed it as an ill-structured, lurid, shock-crazy prequel to a once-popular saga. This is torture. Entertainment Weekly's Owen Gleiberman judged the movie to be a true folly. Almost nothing in it adds up. And the esteemed Vincent Camby of the New York Times added it up thusly. It is not the worst movie ever made. It just seems to be. Some reviewers, such as David Barron of New Orleans' The Time Pacuane, attacked Lynch as fervently as they did his film. This is the latest lurid monstrosity by the nation's most repellent director. It is as gratuitous as it is ugly, containing sophomoric insights that reveal only the banality of Lynch's vision. Al Strobel, who plays Bob's one-armed former consort, Mike, has an eloquent response to the attack dog critics. Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me is hard to look at if you're not prepared to look at a work of art. It's like going to a gallery and seeing extremely impressionistic paintings when you were expecting English landscapes. This was more a piece of art than a movie. The juxtaposition of horror and beauty has an elevating sense that brings out things in your mind and in your heart and in your soul like a very fine piece of art does. The critics didn't see that, and that makes me angry. Since its sad reception in 1992, Firewalk With Me has had a long, fascinating afterlife. More than a third of the media roundup from which I've been taking all of these excerpts throughout this entire Lost in Twin Peaks podcast series is consumed by Firewalk With Me and its analysis of the 90s, zeros, and early to mid-teens that makes up the preponderance of that. The roundup was completed a few months before the release of The Missing Pieces and the announcement of Season 3. Here are just some of those quotations. You can follow the link in the show notes for more, as well as some later commentary on the series, which I'm not reading here, just to keep this section somewhat focused. In Family Romance, Family Violence by Diane Stevenson in Boulevard, 1993, 
She wrote, It is only in Twin Peaks that Lynch allows himself explicitly to bring out the incestuous violence right in the midst of the middle-class home. Public discourse about family violence has by now made it clear that it is a problem that afflicts every strata of our society. The eruption of incestuous violence in the middle-class home, in Twin Peaks, does not come about straightforwardly, however, but through the doubling of Leland and Bob. Bob is the double of Leland, the Mr. Hyde to Leland's Dr. Jekyll, and he is a double in another sense, doubly a figure of the underworld, a low-life drifter from the criminal underworld, and a demon from the spectral underworld. That Bob the criminal drifter resides in Leland tells us that Leland harbors the criminal inside of him, that the incestuous and the murderous are to be understood as part of his psychological makeup. That Bob the demon possesses Leland tells us that anyone could be so possessed. What is so distinctive about Twin Peaks is the way it connects all sexuality and violence to the abuse of a daughter by a father in a middle-class home. It's as if every person in town were but a part of a multiple personality generated by that abuse, as if not just an individual, but a society had been formed in that incestuous cradle. It is crucially important for the incest victim that the truth of the abuse be recognized rather than merely imputed to the mind. The theme of incest and family violence emerges still more clearly in the Twin Peaks movie than in the television series, because the movie gives us Laura Palmer's point of view. Whereas the television series begins with Laura Palmer's corpse, and then proceeded with an investigation into what happened, led by the detective Agent Cooper, the movie takes us into what happened through the consciousness of the young woman who ends up dead. The television series told the story of the town, the movie focuses on one young woman who comes to the fearful recognition that the incubus who has been invading her bed is no dream or phantom, but her own father. Having Laura Palmer as the central consciousness makes the story more psychological and more amenable to natural explanation. In the Twin Peaks movie, a good spirit comes to the rescue of a friend of Laura's who is in the same danger as she, but Laura lacks the resources, the self-esteem one might say, the sense of good in herself, to summon her guardian angel until after her death. The television series began in the glow of that fame and was glowingly received at first, but gradually lost favor both with the public and with the critics. Especially in its second season, it suffered from unevenness and the obscurity of each episode to a viewer not knowledgeable about the series as a whole. But there were some very strong episodes right up until the end. The increasing disapproval that the series encountered had something to do, one suspects, with its increasing boldness in dealing with the theme of violence that dwells at home. In Blue Velvet, this theme was more veiled, and with some distortion it could be still subsumed under a conventional Freudian reading. It's true that in recent years, child abuse and family violence have been gaining a public hearing, but what is acceptable in daytime talk shows is not necessarily acceptable as primetime drama, and not necessarily reputable to critics and commentators. Lynch's fall from their grace may be due, as they maintain, to a decline in the quality of his work, but it may also be due to the growing explicitness of his treatment of a theme that makes them uncomfortable. For whatever reason, the movie of Twin Peaks was a critical and financial disaster in this country. The reviews were unanimously negative. The public stayed away. I thought it a good and gripping film that can stand beside Blue Velvet. Vincent Camby of the New York Times, who declared it virtually the worst movie ever made, found it so incoherent 
that he failed to grasp the evident fact that it deals with incest and family violence. It wouldn't be the first time that a charge of incoherence or boredom masks a refusal to deal with what is being expressed. In David Lynch, published in 1995, a book by Michael Sheehan, he wrote, If they did make a mistake, it was their assumption that the public had a genuine interest in Laura Palmer herself. In this respect, Firewalk With Me is a truly generous project because it delves into a character who, after her death, serves everyone as a prop for their own projections and fantasies in order to say, this character existed and suffered. Take an interest in this woman. Later he writes in the book, no longer has the lovely, proud features of Lara Flynn Boyle, but the more timid, frail features of Mort Kelly describing the recasting of the character of Donna. He also writes, The fan rumbles like an evil aeroplane near the door to the bedrooms. Leland Palmer turns it on as he goes to possess his daughter. From a visual standpoint, the film's most original and striking aspect is its use of subtly upsetting shooting angles and frames, generating a sense of imbalance. The ideas of walking and standing up and the vertigo that these can induce are central to Fire Walk With Me. And I look down, and my shoes are so far away from me, goes the lyrics written by Lynch for the piece we hear as Bobby rejoices over Laura's smile and takes great backward steps, drunk with the sense of space. Laura is not treated like the conventional lost girl. She is not a mythical, diaphanous creature, nor a frozen image, nor is she a Lulu or a creature fit for a poster. She's a pretty girl, but not stunningly so, rather well endowed, so that when she prepares for a night of debauchery, she has trouble getting into her sexy gear. Laura Palmer is, however, anything but a vixen. There are many moments when Charlie's performance is remarkable. Laura Palmer with her jaw hanging down, disoriented and upset by her father's maniacal madness. Laura drunk and talking nonsense over the body of the man who Bobby just shot with a youthful laugh. Laura being gruff, demanding and imperious, then going to pieces the next day, and throwing herself at James when she is depressed and seems prematurely worn out, shivering in her sweater. If only for the actress's outstanding performance, the film deserves to be seen again. At many different times, and especially through the eyes of the investigators, Firewalk With Me operates on an impenetrable, unreadable surface, like that of a portrait a setting, an impression, or a surveillance screen. And then we hear a bell, and the elevator in an office building ejects a man as if he came from another world. In those moments, a third dimension exultantly opens, like a vertiginous, intoxicating hole. In David Lynch Keeps His Head by David Foster Wallace, published in Premiere, September 1996, he writes, The extent, large, to which Lynch seems to identify with his movie's main characters, is one more thing that makes the film so disturbingly personal. The fact that he doesn't seem to identify much with his audience is what makes the movies cold, though the detachment has some advantages as well. This is one of the unsettling things about a Lynch movie. You don't feel like you're entering into any of the standard, unspoken, unconscious contracts you normally enter into with other kinds of movies. This is unsettling because... In the absence of such an unconscious contract, we lose some of the psychic protections we normally and necessarily bring to bear on a medium as powerful as film. That is, if we know on some level what a movie wants from us, we can erect certain internal defenses that let us choose how much of ourselves we give away to it. 
The absence of point or recognizable agenda in Lynch's films, though, strips these subliminal defenses and lets Lynch get inside your head in a way movies normally don't. This is why his best film's effects are often so emotional and nightmarish. We're defenseless in our dreams, too. This may, in fact, be Lynch's true and only agenda, just to get inside your head. He sure seems to care more about penetrating your head than about what he does once he's in there. Is this good art? It's hard to say. It seems, once again, either ingenious or psychopathic. And if these villains are, at their worst moments, riveting for both the camera and the audience, it's not because Lynch is endorsing or romanticizing evil, but because he's diagnosing it. Diagnosing it without the comfortable carapace of disapproval, and with an open acknowledgement of the fact that one reason why evil is so powerful is that it's hideously vital and robust, and usually impossible to look away from. And as part of an audience, if a movie is structured in such a way that the distinction between surface light good and secret dark evil is messed with, in other words, not a structure whereby dark secrets are winched in ex machina from the lit surface to be purified by my judgment, but rather a structure in which respectable surfaces and seamy undersides are mingled, integrated, literally mixed up, I'm going to be made acutely uncomfortable. And in response to my discomfort, I'm going to do one of two things. I'm either going to find some way to punish the movie for making me uncomfortable, or I'm going to find a way to interpret the movie that eliminates as much of the discomfort as possible. From my survey of published work on Lynch's films, I can assure you that just about every established professional reviewer and critic has chosen one or the other of these responses. The really deep dissatisfaction, the one that made audiences feel screwed and betrayed and fueled the critical backlash against the idea of Lynch's genius auteur, was, I submit, a moral one. I submit that Laura Palmer's exhaustively revealed sins required by the moral logic of American mass entertainment, that the circumstances of her death turn out to be causally related to those sins. We as an audience have certain core certainties about sowing and reaping, and these certainties need to be affirmed and massaged. When they were not, and as it became increasingly clear that they were not going to be, Twin Peaks ratings fell off the shelf, and critics began to bemoan this once daring and imaginative series decline into self-reference and mannered incoherence. In Fire Walk With Me, Laura was no longer an enigma, or the password to an inner sanctum of horror. She now embodied, in full view, all the dark secrets that on the series had been the stuff of significant glances and delicious whispers. This transformation of Laura from object occasion to subject person was actually the most morally ambitious thing a Lynch movie has ever tried to do. Maybe an impossible thing, given the psychological context of the series, and the fact that you had to be familiar with the series to make even marginal sense of the movie. And it required complex and contradictory and probably impossible things from Ms. Lee, who in my opinion deserved an Oscar nomination just for showing up and trying. I'm not suggesting that Lynch entirely succeeded at the project he set out for himself in Fire Walk With Me. He didn't. What I am suggesting is that the withering critical reception the movie received had less to do with its failings in the project than with its attempting it at all. In The Passion of David Lynch, Wild at Heart in Hollywood, published in 1997 uh, by Martha Nockhamson, she wrote, With the exception of incest narratives in daytime television soap opera, 
those few incest stories that have reached the mass audience firmly displace audience identification away from the victim and toward the strong, controlling doctor who takes over the story as a manager to lead the violated party to discovery and wholeness. Cooper must wait until he can translate Laura's knowledge of who killed her into terms he can express. Setting a precedent, but without inviting identification with Laura, the television series retains her ownership of her own story, which no one else on the show can tell, hence the need for a prequel. Lynch's desire in making his own Twin Peaks film to confront what was evaded in the series is natural, if commercially dangerous. The notion of Laura's freedom in the subconscious beyond of the town of Twin Peaks is the seed that is planted in her dream and that germinates as the story progresses, culminating in the visions of the angels. At this point, Laura is confused about the message to her from her subconscious. Taking the ring seems like death. However, the promise is there. If the wounded Laura looks at her nighttime image with confusion, the dreaming Laura looks back at her with tenderness and compassion. Readers may be interested to know how resistant the critics can be to recognize that Fire is a film organized around the violations of incest. Happily, Diane Stevenson discusses incest at length in her article, but in those full-length studies on Lynch which came out in time to consider Fire Walk With Me, the presence of incest in its story is barely or never recognized. In his extensive, relatively sympathetic discussions of the film, Shion mentions discontinuity in the film, his perceptions of a recurring image of walking, and the relationship of the film to the series, but not once does he use the word incest. Alexander acknowledges the incest, but as an aside, as if it were just one element of the story and not a determining condition. Furthermore, he barely recognizes that this film is about feminine perspective. The attention he pays to Laura's character analyzes her presence from the point of view of the male sensibility, as if he were still talking about the series. The cultural assumptions that everything coherent issues from a masculine point of view is so pervasive that critics usually are unable to make the shift in perspective, even regarding those rare works of popular culture that quite blatantly depart from this convention. In Fire Walk With Me, where Lynch energetically neutralizes this kind of male control, the opinion has been that something doesn't feel right. In Anatomy of a Fascinating Disaster by Alex Papadimus in Grantland from August 29, 2012, he writes, Lee, who managed so thoroughly to haunt the TV series, is wrenching and phenomenal as the living Laura. She's playing a child who tries to protect herself by co-opting a language of cruelty and sexual intimidation, bent on destroying her own innocence before Bob Ken, a lost little girl pinballing between abject despair, femme fatale tough talk, canny seductiveness, and just straight up being a monster. Lee is playing a vast range of stereotypes and archetypes here, all of which still seem to have sprung convincingly from one character's soul. This is, among other things, one of the bleakest, cruelest movies about teenage self-actualization ever made. The fact that Laura dies at the end doesn't make her any less of the hero of this movie. She's a Lynch version of the Jean Grey, Dark Phoenix from the X-Men mythology, struggling valiantly against an unconquerable evil. It's Lee's galvanic emotionalism that keeps Fire from being just a super-victim origin story, Buffy in Grim Reverse. 
or a backwoods surrealist after-school special. Lynch loves to put his female protagonists through hell, but nobody except maybe Lynch longtime muse Laura Dern has been this raw in one of his films, or conveyed this much shock and tar. Eventually, even her sex-pop pose becomes a mask that slips. On re-watching this last week, my favorite part of Lee's performance became the scene where she's all messed up on coke and airplane bottle Jack Daniels, trying to put on stockings in her bedroom while smoking and talking on the phone. A flash of awkward and brilliantly played physical comedy that crops up just before things get really dark. It's weird that Cheryl Lee didn't get more work after this, although on some level, maybe she'd made it impossible for people to not see Laura when they looked at her. When she turns up in movies like Winter's Bone, it's like seeing a ghost. In Cherry Pie Wrapped in Barbed Wire, Understanding Twin Peaks Firewalk Me by Brett Stephen Abelman, on, published on September 10th, 2012, he wrote, In this sense, Laura both did create Bob as a psychological cover for what she was going through with Leland, and did not. She had to imagine her father as an evil stranger, so she did, and it was natural for Bob, already being around, to present himself as the form that her evil stranger would take. In other words, Lars' 12-year-old mind needed a monster, and Bob came out of hiding and took the job. My theory here, to restate, is that all of the Lodge people, even if they already exist, require this sort of imagination or invocation to manifest. In the end, I am interested in an explanation that preserves the show and the movie's emotional content and doesn't contradict the clearly literal existence of the Lodge people. Thinking of the Lodge people as manifestations that take on a life of their own but are subject to the emotional wills of people like Lara preserves her and Leland's psychological agency. I find it no wonder that Cheryl Lee reports being thanked by incest victims for her brave portrayal and told that the movie meant a lot to them. Firewalk With Me suggests that, in committing incest, the abuser and victim literally, in their illicit and one-way forcible encounter, allow a demon in. I assume, given the thanks Lee got, that the film's vision must be, in some way, what it feels like for the victim, a kind of catharsis for them. The Twin Peaks show, by the end, had revealed everything about the murder it was going to reveal, who Bob was, how Leland was responsible, and, obliquely, through Laura's diary entries, clues from the various murders. Sarah's visions, and his interactions with Maddie, that Leland had been abusing Lara. But it still had something significant missing. Lara's story was still untold. She still, as of the end of the series, remained, as far as the audience could have known, a passive victim of either an abusive father or a dark spirit, or both. Lynch realized this, and realized that the fans of Twin Peaks deserved a gift, the story of Lara. But not just her story, the story of how she chose and had agency in her death. In 20 years on, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me reassessed by Petra Davis in The Quietus on October 20th, 2012, she wrote, At the time the series was first screened in the UK, I was a teenager living in a small seaside town notorious for drug abuse, sexual exploitation, and suicide. The show's thesis that acts of violence have consequences far beyond their immediate was a useful fiction. In The Rape and Murder of Laura Palmer, Cheryl Lee, I found an analog for what I saw in my indigent hometown. I knew plenty of adults who were violent to children in their various ways. I knew plenty more who rationalized that violence. I knew desperate teenagers by the busload. In Twin Peaks, I was grateful to see the complex consequences of abuse conveyed so well. 
The gallows humor of survivors, their toughness, their intense sweetness, and their terrible fear. The corruption of those who collude, their awful habit of denial. At its best, the series acknowledged a kind of violence that mainstream discourses were loath to admit. At its worst, with its narrative tricksiness and doubt, it ran the risk of trivializing it. In Twin Peaks Firewalk Me by Kayla Marsh in the Village Voice, May 14, 2013, he wrote, In truth, it's more interested in systematically dismantling the mythos and iconography of Twin Peaks than in pandering to the show's fanbase with some feature-length trip down TV memory lane. The film is alarmingly dark. It isn't especially funny or quirky or even much in keeping with the spirit of the series. But in its own singular, deeply strange way, Firewalk With Me is David Lynch's masterpiece. The purpose of all this appropriation, however, isn't merely to ironize outmoded forms or tropes, as it often is in the work of the Coen brothers, but to embrace those antiquated modes and deploy those old-fashioned tropes in earnest. The film uses melodrama in particular to replicate the function and goal of the genre, targeting the veneer of sanctity in the middle-class American home and exposing its hypocrisy and corruption. Far from filling out a story or answering lingering questions, the film's purpose is to restore a sort of innocence lost, commendably endowing the show's principal victim, Laura Palmer, with a voice with which to speak for herself. Twin Peaks was defined more than anything else by Laura's pointed absence. Fire Walk With Me is defined by her presence, vivid and terrified and alone. The film offers us an opportunity to experience firsthand a character who had existed through the series only as a recreated fantasy, an imagined emblem of innocence and suffering who, like Otto Preminger's Laura, could only be obsessed over in death. In doing so, the film suggests that the pain endured in her life was far more important than the intrigue surrounding her death. And we instead come to know not the mystery of what happened, but the tragedy of why it did. Laura's sense of resignation is correct. Her fate is sealed. Firewalk With Me is a prequel to a series whose very concept is the death of the film's hero, which makes its ending a done deal before it even begins. Though in a way, these fantastic elements were its bread and butter, the series ultimately suffered emotionally by explaining away the trauma of Lara's death and by assigning Leland's evil to his demonic alter ego. But the film returns us from fantasy to reality, reasserting the evil in the man himself. Lara's death at the hands of her father becomes a tragedy, localized in a recognizable world, rather than one happening in the fantasy of fiction. The fantasy becomes figural, history of sexual abuse becomes real. The contrasting halves of the film's bifurcated narrative find two worlds crashing together. The first a plan of frustrated desire and inscrutable mystery. The second a void into which a young woman is swallowed up. The procedural elements of the first are fundamentally disconnected from the tragedy of the second, suggesting that, in the final estimation, we can't rely on institutions to protect us. They're solving the wrong cases. And finally, in Fire Walk With Me, Trauma, Catharsis, and the Fantasy of Fantastical Kinship, a conversation between Andrew Esibong and Hannah Eaton at the Birkbeck Arts Week in 2014, published on May 23, 2014, we have this exchange. Hannah, I was really struck by what a feminist film it is in so many ways. Laura's absolute subject. Her face is used in this silver screen goddess way like Betty Davis's face in Now Voyager. It's utter close-up. 
But it's not used in the same way. It's not like Betty Davis or Marilyn. Her performance is just a completely extraordinary. It's all her. It's about the film being given over to Laura. And also, I think Lynch does something really radical and amazing with the sexualized female body as well. I can remember the publicity for the series and what was written about the series being very much about homecoming queen by day, cocor by night. And I think what Lynch does in Firewalk with me is deconstruct that, present that as what it is, a morally vacuous thing to say within the narrative. Actually, what he tells us in Firewalk with me is that it's a dissociative split. It's a response to her abuse. Hannah also says, I think it's a really profoundly generous thing that Lynch has done. He never presents the reality of Twin Peaks like all the Lodge people and Bob as fantasy with a PH. Laura is not mad. Laura is not a pathologized object. She's experiencing it all. Later, Hannah says, the Lynch God does something like that at the end of Twin Peaks. When you watch the film, it's profoundly emotional, moving and beautiful, the way Laura gets her angels back at the end. But I don't know whether to be disappointed in all the redemption because does it reduce her suffering a bit to put in a narrative of virtue rewarded? Is something being done to her as a reward almost? I'm not very sure what I think about it. But you know, and it's weird to say about Twin Peaks, it's not very realistic laughter in the audience. But loads of Twin Peaks is realistic. Even stuff like The Log Lady is quite realistic in a way, but that's not. Andrew says, a monstrosity which isn't silly, which isn't trivializing, the only form possible for such violence and for such abuse, is in a figure which is slightly fantastical. And for me, Bob Leland totally got that. Making Bob the demon a kind of aspect of Leland, the man, wasn't a get-out clause. It wasn't trying to exonerate Leland's behavior. It was trying to say that an aspect of Leland, who knows what he carries, abuse, trauma, I guess what Abraham and Torok would call some kind of crypt or phantom, could only be expressed in a figure split into both demon and human. And Hannah says, which is what many a child has done about an abuser. Hannah comments, we used to have to be Bob behind our desks at school, the day that Twin Peaks had been on, to lessen the horror a bit. And Andrew says, Ferenczi describes something very similar in a lot of the people he ter- he treats in terms of a splitting of the self into different categories of being. He talks about there being the traumatized child who can't speak, also a dead body, lifeless and unfeeling, which you could equate with Laura Palmer's body floating down the river at the beginning of the show. Also this kind of cosmic identification with a protective heavenly sphere. He notes that again and again, his patients often split into these three different categories of being. Dead body, not literally dead, but self-experienced as dead. Child who can't speak, but also what his patient Elizabeth Severn called an orpha, a kind of supernatural being. Which is what I think we see Laura turn into at the end. Andrew says, I do remember certain standout scenes that made me feel like I was changing inside. One of the scenes is when Laura is outside her house in the middle of the day. She's come home from school or something and she sees Leland come from the house. And it's a moment where she realizes that Leland and Bob are the same person. Hannah comments and she says, it's not him. It's not him. It's not him. But it is. You know, she knows it is. And Andrew says, absolutely. And just talking about it, the awful proverbial, the hairs on the back of your neck, but they actually are standing up. So I have to say it, cheesy though it may be. Andrew also says, Ferenci talks about how hard he has to work to get the patients to actually acknowledge 
what happened to them. And so they come to him with these stories, but they're saying, oh, I'm not sure. Maybe it did happen. Maybe it didn't happen. And, you know, even after years and years where it's become clear to him that something terrible really has happened, they're still doubting themselves because they're so profoundly internalized the abuser's interdiction to speak of it or acknowledge it as real. They just can't go forward with the progress they're making. And I think that to go to your question, what could the use of those moments of recognition and Lynch be? A moment like that where Lara can no longer be in doubt that this has happened, that what is impossible is actually possible, that affirms a recognition that can't be intellectually argued within a way. It goes beyond, did it happen or didn't it happen? And Hannah comments, it's, this is real. And that's the end of this episode, but tomorrow we continue with the reception that the film got. In this case, uh, although we did sort of already focus on this a little with the bloggers and commentators online, where I think they're writing about it in a very critical, intelligent way, but uh, they, and I should include myself in this, we as online commentators are also dealing with it in a fan context. I think that somebody writing for an official publication may not. There's a little bit of a blurry gray zone. So tomorrow we're going to jump right to the other side of that gray zone, looking at people who, uh, in the fan community, how they received the film at the time, starting with the Usenet alt.tv Twin Peaks board that we talked about the reactions to the show on, and then also my questions to fans in around 2014 about their memories of watching the film for the first time, and also my own responses to this and to the missing pieces. We're going to start now, tomorrow, weaving the missing pieces into this coverage. So I'll see you then, and uh, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and you can become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Actually, this is good pie. It's much like your movie... There's so much sugar and coffee and pie in your movie. Well, um, you know, probably everywhere, but for sure in the Northwest, the reason I know is I grew up there, coffee is extremely important, uh, and pie is extremely important, and uh, people have <laughs> pie and coffee uh, sometimes You just say together. that with such a serious look on your face. I'm sorry, but I have to laugh. I mean, we're talking about pie. This movie contains a lot of sex, a lot of violence, a lot of sexual violence, in fact. So I pose the question to you, are you both ready to take a lot of heat for this film? Do you know you guys are going to take some real interesting interview questions? We, live, we live in an oven. Yeah. That's how much heat we're going to take. Yeah, yeah. And you have food in your house and you have a kitchen? I have, um, yes, I do. I don't cook in the house. Mm -hmm. And that's um, um, because of the odor, and a, and a film develops in the, on the walls. Should I pursue this, Kyle? I don't know, Kyle. There's something that, that should. I feel sense like. Makes to me. That's, 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 absolutely. The relationship that you two <laughs> seem to have is so terrific. You know those kind of relationships where you don't have to finish sentences. Yeah. You know what I mean? Of course. And they get it. Mm-hmm. Do you now have that? Yes, we. I think we had that from the Yes, day. we can do. <laughs> 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 See, it's rusty. I haven't no. seen it for a while. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs>